when it comes to branding, I think most businesses realize that if there is something that lets people know that this is you, then that's something you got to protect. I ask people all the time, what would you rather own? A Nike shoe factory or the Nike swoosh? I think most people would pick the latter. Hello there and welcome back to the My Future Business Show. My name is Rick Nusky. I'm your host. If this is your first time with us on the show, welcome. I know you're in for a treat and for everybody else who's been supporting the show for as long as you have been, thank you so very much for your support because it makes all the difference knowing that the show is making a difference for you. Now, on today's show, I have the pleasure of welcoming speaker and attorney at law, Mr. Eric C. Williams. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Yes, good morning. Now, you and I are going to be talking about the importance of intellectual property rights for businesses, how to protect trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets, along with the impacts of AI and other emerging technologies. So there's certainly a little bit to unpack during our conversation, but it is mandatory yeah. for us to spend a bit of time. We do this in three sections, Eric. We we talk a little bit about you, then we shift into the core of the call, and then we share your details at the end. So where are you calling in from today? I'm actually in Detroit, Michigan. Fantastic. Um, yeah. And that, is, is that been a uh, home forever or? Um, well, so I'm originally from Detroit, yep. but uh, I was, I worked in New York and Miami and LA for, you know, 10, 15 years or so. And I moved back here about, uh, been about 10, 12 years now. Yeah, time flies when time flies when you're having fun. Now, tell me a little bit about uh, what's behind you there. You seem to have uh, the big M on the wall. What's that all about? Go blue, go University blue. of Michigan. <laughs> so you like to go watch a game? Uh, whenever I can. Whenever, whenever you can. I can. Well, that's interesting. Given uh, I'm sure you're pretty busy with uh, your professional work that we're going to be talking about. So, when you do get some downtime, what what do you like to do? Is it just sports? Do you have any other things you enjoy? Uh, well, I'm I'm fortunate enough to actually have uh, three children who grew up to be people I actually like. Oh, yes. So, uh, <laughs> so two of them live in the New York area. Um, my eldest daughter lives with me, and uh, she's actually a lot of fun, yep. uh, which is, you know, more than you expect from your kids. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, I'm very blessed. I get to hang out with my kids. And, yeah. uh, my father's still in the area, so, you know. Yeah, love just, to spend time with family well that's possible. that that is very you know grounding isn't it you know they bring you back to reality and you know if there's one thing as mm -hmm. a father that you you think that you've done well with your kids beyond building these wonderful strong relationships what's one thing do you think they've taken away from you as their dad well they're close to each other yeah i mean there's a 10-year gap between my eldest my son mm -hmm. and then my eldest uh, daughter, there's and the youngest daughter, there's t there's a ten year gap, and they're really good friends. You they, wouldn't know, you would know, you? Hang out with each other. <laughs> I, I got very lucky. He took on the role of being elder brother uh, uh, with grace and enthusiasm, <laughs> and it just sort of held on to it. So the fact that the three of them are close and talk to each other pretty much every day, even though they don't all live in the same place, yeah. uh, is something I'm. I'm you know, I'm thrilled about, just absolutely thrilled about. Thank you for sharing. I love this sort of part of the call because, you know, it digs in a little bit deeper behind the business because we know the nuts and bolts of a business doesn't generally change. But again, I thank you yeah. for, for sharing. Now, in terms of going out for a meal and enjoying yourself, what do you like to do? 
so one of the wonderful things about Michigan is, I mean, I live in Detroit, which is an urban area uh, that's really in the midst of an urban renewal. So what you get, there are a lot of startups, you see lots of restaurants and food trucks. So it's, it's interesting to go out and, and see new things, but you go, you know, half an hour outside of Detroit and the Midwest not so much a fan in mm-hmm. the winter time, but mm-hmm. in the spring and the autumn, summer, gorgeous. Yep. Uh, Love uh, it. Get out in nature. Thank you. Now, I wonder, every time I think of Detroit, I don't know why this is, I always think of the automotive industry and how it um, crashed in a big way. Tell us a little bit about the renewal that you just talked about. So... If you if you've ever been in a place that is you know sort of based on a single industry, uh, you tend to get real extreme fluctuations when there are changes in 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 that industry. So, uh, and if you've never been near an automobile plant, it's difficult to understand how much it sort of dominates the landscape, not only sort of from an economic perspective, but also just from purely a physical perspective, right? So. Uh, I live within, you know, five miles of two different auto plants, and they're massive. Uh, and at one point, you know, you see an auto plant that employed 50,000 people now only employs, you know, 12,000, even though they make more cars simply because of automation. So the city of Detroit has kind of had to adapt to that. Uh, we've gone from a population of almost 2 million in, you know, the 1950s, basically, to about half that actually less than half that about a third of that at this point uh and so the city has just sort of had to reconfigure itself uh not trying to be a a massive city so much as to be a more stable you know mid-sized city and we've come a long way that the waterfront is amazing there's a lot of entrepreneurial activity in the area um between you know, the big three, Ford, GM, and Chrysler, and University of Michigan. Um, you've got a lot of uh, technological um, industry uh, springing up, not only around the automobile industry, but, you know, healthcare, you name it. So there's a lot of activity here. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you again for sharing. Now, I'm going to wind back the time a little bit because I love digging a little bit deeper before we jump into the core of the call. Tell us what life was like growing up in Detroit? <laughs> um, it's, it was interesting. So I grew up in, you know, so I, I'm in, you know, mid fifties. So uh, I, I was going, I was in high school in the eighties and it's interesting. You can't, Detroit is a place that, where race always seems to become uh, a, a factor. It's the largest majority black city in America. And when mm. I was growing up, when I graduated from high school, there were maybe still about 1.2 million people living in the city of Detroit, uh, and roughly 90% of it was black. So, uh, and I just sort of grew up thinking that was normal. I mean, where I grew up, you know, the mayor was black, the chief of police was black, the doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs were black, the thugs and criminals were black, because everybody was black. And so for me, when I went out, you know, I graduated from, from college and uh, I went off to the rest of the world. I was actually surprised. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm a minority. I actually hadn't noticed that before. Uh, it wasn't really a factor in my upbringing. So, 
which is not something everyone gets in Detroit in the United States or, you know, anywhere. If you're a, a minority of some sort, yep. usually you're aware of it. I, I really was kind of clueless in that regard. Yeah. Wow. So that's, that was the most interesting thing about growing up in Detroit. Now, well, tell me, in those formative years, those early years, we all have somebody, well, I, I recall having somebody that I used to look to for advice, for guidance, and they shaped the man that I became today. Did you have anybody like that in your life? Oh, yeah. My um, my father. Uh, yep. He is, he, he still is, you know, one of my favorite people. Um, he was, um, went over to Vietnam uh, three Purple Hearts, Bronze wow. Star, Silver Star, came back, was a Detroit cop for 17 years. Yep. Um, then retired because of uh, he lost his arm to cancer from Agent Orange exposure over in Vietnam. Goodness me. Um, and went to law school and then became a lawyer. Uh, so he became a lawyer around the time I, I was already in college by the time he became a lawyer. But yep. so yep. my life growing up, he was always a police officer. But... Um, my father's one of those people who just un nothing phases him. Can I can imagine. Anything. You know, I can yeah. just I can only guess the 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 depth of storytelling that that man could share with the world from yeah. his experiences overseas and doing what he has done and had to endure. I guess is probably the best way to put it. And you know, it, and he's still you know strong and healthy and doing what he's doing today with gusto. Well, he had some <laughs> uh, he had some health challenges uh, about two years ago. I actually thought I was going to lose him. He ended up losing uh, he ended up losing his leg, mm -hmm. and uh, so now he's got a leg and an arm. And uh, you ask him what he's doing, he's like pretty good for an old one arm, one leg man holding in, <laughs> holding on with my one with my one good arm. Uh, and he's still the same great. He's Amazing, a great storyteller. My son is in fact a police officer, inspired oh. by my. Uh, so when did he graduate and stuff. become a like an actual police officer? Uh, my son's been a cop in South Orange, New Jersey, for going on four years now. Yeah, again, time flies. Yeah. Now. Does he enjoy the job? Yeah, he does. He does. Uh, though, you know, being a police officer, things happen. He was actually supposed to be here this weekend coming in from New York, but uh -huh. something happened on the job. He wasn't able to make it. Yep. You know, yep. that. but I understand that because that's what happened when I was a kid growing up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, look, thank you very much for sharing some insights into your, I guess, your more of your private life. And that's what gives the My Future Business Show a little bit of a different context as, as we shift gears and talk about how it was that you came to be in the profession you were. So tell us firstly, um, just for some context, about your professional um, background and education. Sure. So um, I have to say this. I went to Cass Tech High School in Detroit. Yep. Um, same high school as Diana Ross, Lily Tomlin, Big Sean, <laughs> Leon Coca. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so i got to give props to Cass Tech. Oh, yeah. Uh, I went to the University of Michigan. Um, I did my degree in uh, feminist literary theory. Um, and then I went to grad school at uh, Cambridge and did uh, my master's in international law and then came back to the States. I actually spent eight years working in the nonprofit sector before mm -hmm. going off to law school at Columbia and then had the 
distinct displeasure practicing in a number of fairly large law firms in New York. Didn't so, enjoy it? Oh, man. 100, you know, 110, 120 hour weeks. Wow. Uh, no, thanks. Just, yeah, no, it just, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't really feel for the work that yep. I was doing. A lot of people do enjoy it. Uh, I just wasn't one of those people. So um, after law school, uh, like I said, a number of years doing that, then I uh, I became a teacher. So I moved back to Detroit and took a job teaching at a uh, law school here, Wayne State uh, University Law School. Yep. And uh, I really enjoyed it. It was it was good. One, it was good to be back in Detroit. And two, uh, there's something about helping other people understand what you're doing, right? What their profession is about, knowing how to take it seriously. Yep. Uh, I always told my students, we really only teach you, you know, three things in law school, how to think like a lawyer, how to look stuff up and how to convey that information to the client. Yep. And uh, watching people get the hang of it. Right. I mean, I I taught for you know, eight years, nine years. And now students that I, that I taught years ago, one of them, you know, they run for, you know, district attorney, or I see a big case and I say, Oh yeah, I remember that student. They were, uh, <laughs> they were pretty good back in the day. Yeah. And so, uh, then I went and joined a nonprofit called the Detroit justice center. So I run our economic equity practice there, which is centered around, you know, businesses and uh, community development. But I've always kept my private practice, uh, which is focused primarily on intellectual property. And I've been so I've been doing that basically for the last, you know, 15 years or so. Yep. Um, as my father said, I will never give up my law license because I never want to give up the unmitigated right to sell somebody to kiss my <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's and it must must feel good knowing that no one can pull the wool over your eyes because you know how the game is played. You know what the rule book says. Tell us a little bit about how difficult it is to keep up with the, with the changing landscape of law. How often does it change? Uh, pretty much daily. Yep. And <laughs> so uh, of late we've had um, our Supreme Court has taken a very different tilt than what it was just a few years ago. In the United States Supreme Court is, well, on, on social issues, it's become rather more conservative, uh, but on other issues, business issues, it's become a lot less predictable. Right. Uh, it used to be that you would assume that certain, uh, the judges that were, at least on the Supreme Court, that were elected, that were appointed by a particular party would adhere to a particular uh, philosophy, not not necessarily a political um, stance, but um, have either a more business friendly or more, you know, sort of restrictive view of certain rights. And that hasn't been the case anymore. So that's, uh, you, you really, you do have to, <laughs> you have to, I mean, it's silly, but you really do have to read the newspapers in addition to legal journals that, publish new cases and analyze them. Mm. But those kind of things are important. Um, but the practice of law has changed dramatically since I graduated from school. So yep. when I came out, uh, if you did legal research, checking a case, for example, you they say you shepherdized it. So you, there was this 
book called Shepherds, and you would just look up in this book to see if any of the cases that were relevant had been cited. And simply looking up a decision to make sure it was still good would require you to have a stack of books this high on your desk. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, spend hours going back and forth. And legal, you know, sort of electronic legal research was just coming to, into its own as I was graduating from law school. So nowadays, shepherdizing something literally means clicking a button yep. <laughs> on the case. Yep. Uh, but that's very different from what it was, you know, the 20 years ago when I started, 23 years ago when I started practicing. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so I think about academic rigor when you start talking this way. And I remember when I was at university, just how painful it was and cumbersome. Has, mm. has that changed? You, you just mentioned having to click a button now to get the same sort of source materials, case studies and, you know, um, case evidence. Is it is it a lot easier nowadays than it used to be? Uh, yes and no, right? Mm -hmm. And this is actually an interesting segue into sort of the whole notion of artificial intelligence. Ah. It, it used to be that it was more difficult to find the information, but there also wasn't exactly the same expectation. And attorneys who could look and find that case that was out there actually had an advantage, and there was a real advantage to being um, someone who was, who was diligent and you know sort of knew how to do research. Yep. Nowadays, there's the expectation that you have access to every case that has ever been published and every journal and every law review article that has ever been published. And whether you do or not, the judges and their clerks certainly do, and opposing counsel does. So, um, and part of that is simply uh, <laughs> the ability to search vast amounts of information in ways that you simply couldn't do, mm -hmm. you know, even five years ago. It's gotten kind of crazy in that, um, <laughs> Some lawyers have been unscrupulous enough to even rely on artificial intelligence uh, oh, wow. to actually write their briefs. And that sort of leads to one of the problems where artificial intelligence programs, I mean, if they don't know the answer, it seems that they will just make stuff up, <laughs> which might fly with your freshman English teacher, but isn't going to fly with the judge. Oh no! Uh, when you start making up citations, which has in fact happened, uh, and the lawyer ultimately is responsible for that. Of as, course, um, they've got a due diligence yeah. uh, requirement, don't they? Yeah, yeah, Duty that's, of a, care. that's a bit of a problem. Yeah, wow. And that is breach. You know, you, there's there are professional standards you have to live up to, and submitting a brief with you know made up cases does not meet not the that way to standard. go. No, I, I wonder. Uh, Eric, how do you see the regulations evolving around AI? And what are the, I guess, the considerations that need to be made for the legal, the legal profession moving forward? So when it comes to how AI is going to be used in, let's say, uh, litigation, right? That's one thing. It's going mm. to, you know, it's going to be able to examine cases and judges and prior decisions and circumstances in a way that only a team of attorneys and support personnel could do before, right? So you're talking about being able to look and say, oh, this judge has issued 150 decisions that involve this 
type of situation. And this is how they came down in these specific instances. These are the these are the factors that were at play when they ruled this way. These are the factors that were in play in play when they ruled this way. Yep. I mean, it's, it's, these kind of things get done now, but it's much more labor intensive. So that's something that's already happening. Uh, we're, we're going to see more of it. Uh, most of the work I do isn't doesn't involve a court because yep. uh, I'm primarily transactional, right? So. Uh, but the same the same thing still comes into play. What artificial intelligence does is enable us not only to look at vast amounts of data, but also analyze that data in the way that was, you know, in many smaller transactions, cost prohibitive. You just simply didn't have it. Didn't make sense to spend, you know, a hundred thousand dollars on lawyers for a transaction that involved, you know, $20,000. It just didn't. No. So, but the economics of it have changed because yep. the ease with which it can be done has been changed. So um, we start talking about transactions, the amount of due diligence that's necessary uh, is, 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 has changed. And how, how you value assets has really changed too because intellectual property you know has always been valuable but now uh, the ways in which it can be monetized have really have really increased yeah well that's great feedback i i i hear you talk about Oops. transactional um yeah. work are you there hello yeah uh, sorry, I just broke up for a moment there. I, I know that you talked about being a transactional attorney. Is that simply a matter of um, working for one client and they give you you give them an outcome and that's the end of the the relationship? How does that that work? Explain the transactional part of it. Well, okay, so many times that's the case. Um, I'll somebody will come to me and they'll need a licensing agreement done or. Uh, they're in the midst of a merger and they want some assistance doing sort of this one-off kind of thing. Uh, and that does happen. But frequently I kind of serve as essentially corporate counsel for smaller uh, businesses. Yep. So it's more of an ongoing relationship. I, it's, it's important to know a business if you're going to represent a business. It's uh, If you're just coming in on, you know, sort of one deal, one transaction, understanding what each party is trying to achieve is, you know, generally speaking, sufficient and, you know, not ideal. If you're working with an ongoing bit uh, with the company on an ongoing basis, it's very important to know, you know, what the business's priorities are, mm. right? What what the owner's values are, and what their long term objectives are. So uh, this particular uh, one particular transaction may not actually reflect what the business is actually trying to achieve. Uh, um, so you, you need to have a better understanding of, of your client when when it's an ongoing. Um, yeah. it's so ongoing there is that there is that relationship element there. That's what I've taken away mm -hmm. from that feedback. Thank you again for for sharing. Now, I know having looked over your website that there are a multitude of different services that you offer. I'm just wondering if you can break down what's the one thing that you 
um, do the best? Is that and is it the core business, or do you continue to provide the suite of services? So I I do I provide a lot of services for you know I, I work with startups and so it's in smaller um, ongoing concerns, right? So yeah. uh, a lot one of the things I do is I assist companies with uh, sort of minority business certifications or, or so whether it's a woman-owned business or a minority-owned business there are a lot of different certifications that you can get that actually play a role in the type of um, sort of role you can play in mm. you know sort of becoming a, a supplier or something like that so i do a yep. lot of that um i do trademarks and copyright what they refer to what's referred to as soft ip um, and probably the thing I do the most at this point is um, IP audits. So right. that's just taking a look at how a company is using intellectual property. And that, I mean, obviously, that includes the intellectual property that they own, right? So mm-hmm. it's, you know, the trademark or whatever. I, a lot of companies aren't aware that they need to make sure that the the intellectual property that they use they either own or are licensing, which is important. You'd be surprised how many small companies get caught up by using you know someone else's copyright or trademark or patent. And I mean they don't own it; they haven't licensed it, uh, and that can be really problematic. The other thing is making sure that they capture the IP that they produce right uh whether it's coming from someone they hired as an independent contractor or whether or not it's the kind of ip that it's kind of generated by virtue of their business model whether it's you know business plans or uh, you know actual something that is worthy of a copyright something mm-hmm. that uh, perhaps should be patented and smaller companies and startups, they, they don't think about that until they're halfway, you know, they're down the road. And then they look up and they go, oh, yeah, oh, we <laughs> yeah, we should probably should have taken care of that. Yeah, uh, I wonder. <laughs> yeah. Can you ever backpedal if with a company that's gotten themselves into hot water? Have you ever had that experience? And how do they navigate away from that, that problem when they're in it? <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, it can be really difficult. It depends on what we're talking about right so uh if you're talking about something like uh say it's a say it's a copy say it's a trademark which is a really easy example uh you start using a trademark and you didn't bother researching whether or not someone else had that trademark in a Mm -hmm. way and using it in a way that was problematic for you i had a client that was using a trademark had been using it for like three years and then someone else came and pointed out that they actually owned that mark uh (laughs) related to that particular kind of service yep and by the time the client had come to me they'd already gotten a number of letters uh the last of which being fairly strongly worded saying yeah saying you know (laughs) you need to stop stealing our stuff (laughs) <laughs> and uh, the best I could do was negotiate a year period for them to basically scrub the internet of any reference to their business under oh. the prior name. 
they had to change uh, all their signage. They had to change. I mean, it was a very expensive a major company. impact. Yeah, yeah, and just com completely complete rebranding. Now they recovered, but it was a fairly expensive thing to do. And to be honest, it could have been prevented just by doing an early search. Research. I mean, yeah, and those are the most basic things. But you know, it's some lessons are really expensive. You don't I want tell that. you. It got me to thinking, Eric, about the psychological impact, the trauma that must or potentially go, even though they're business owners, they understand that they've got a business and you should separate private from business. It must weigh weigh heavy on some people knowing that they've got this in front of them. How do you, how do you help them navigate that space? So no one wants to use a lawyer. I mean, no. nobody want to be in a position where a lawyer is what you need, right? You usually think of that means things have gone badly. Uh, and to some degree, that's true. You, you can tell people, look, you can pay a lawyer on the front end or you can pay a lawyer on the back end, but you're going to pay a lawyer. That's just kind of how it works. I try to, I try to, to take the same approach to them, to my clients that I take to, you know, family members or friends it's like yo i got you uh and it's kind of, it actually that's where the personal relationship comes in and of that's course. where i actually really i really it's the thing i like most about being a lawyer is when you you tell someone hey okay i understand we've gone through this relax and you can just yep. see the look on it like <laughs> okay. oh, yeah. all right uh, i'm yeah. good Thank you again for sharing. I'm loving this call. Now, I, I got to thinking, given that we're talking about copyright, talking about trade secrets, trademarks, registered trademarks, normal unregistered trademarks, intellectual property, is there a hierarchy to this or do they all happen at the same time? Do they all need to be considered? How do you do the audit on the IP? How does that work? And so the thing, I, the way I looked at it is, I the first thing I look at is what kind of IP regardless of whether we're talking trade secrets or you know something that's formally registered is are you doing anything that's going to get you into trouble right are you infringing on anyone else's ip have you yeah. incorporated for example someone else's intellectual property into your own processes are you monetizing something that you don't own which is what happened when you think about it like when the internet first you know became the wild a big west thing. Yeah, everybody thought, hey, if it's on the internet, I can use it. No, 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 no. no. Everybody, it, it's owned by somebody somewhere, right? So the first thing you want to do is avoid trouble. And then the second thing you want to do is make sure that you're protecting your own rights, right? The, the Protecting the intellectual property that you have. And then you want to make sure you put in, and you want to make sure you put in processes and sort of policies and procedures to govern all that, right? So they're regular reviews of the IP that you're using, that there are regular reviews of, you know, making sure people pay you for any of your IP that they're, that they're using. Um, and then you want to put in, you want to put in procedures that capture and to the extent possible, protect IP as you're creating it. Right. So yeah. whether that's, you know, a provision in an independent contractor agreement or a provision in, uh, you know, whether it's an assignment that goes along with those or whether it's something in an employment agreement, 
it's, it's the circumstances of the client that kind of dictate which you take first. Um, but you certainly want to make sure that among the first things you do is, is protect your client from possible liability for infringing on someone else's uh, trademark or copyright or uh, patent. Yeah, great feedback. Loving, loving it. Thank you very much. Now, I, I always think to myself, um, I, I think, how do I know in my business whether or not I've got something that's worthy of um, protecting? What, what's the criteria for that? So, uh, when it, first of all, when it comes to, uh, let's say, trademark, when it comes to branding, uh, I think most businesses realize that if there is something that lets people know that this is you, right, then yep. that's something you got to protect. I ask people all the time, what would you rather own, a Nike shoe factory or, a, or the Nike swoosh? If you had a choice between the two, which do you want to own, right? And it's, I think most people would pick the latter. Um, so it's easy to figure out that you need to protect the things that are branding. Uh, the next thing to look at is, you know, is there any way you do business that's like your secret sauce, right? Is it, uh, and that could be something that might be protectable by a patent, but tends to be a more expensive and time consuming uh, process. Uh, is there something you've created that other people want to want to use? And we're talking about copyright, which is sort of any a creative expression and sort of you know a tangible, you know, sort of manifestation of it, uh, something creative. And that can be, you know, it's it can be pictures that you use on your website. It can be whatever, but it's it's valuable to you. And if you create, you should protect it. And it, it's always your secret sauce, right? Yep. You always got to check the thing that makes your business unique. And, and frequently that's something that can only be protected by, you know, keeping it a trade secret, but there are requirements in order to do that. Right. I mean, you have to make sure you may take the effort to keep it a trade secret. And sometimes, you know, small businesses figure, well, if I just don't tell anyone that's good, nah. not so much. Not so much. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder, are there ever situations um, where uh, copyrights or trademarks or any of the IP that we've been talking about, Eric, are somewhat leased out to another party by agreement? Is that is that a thing? Oh yeah, yeah, certainly it is, um, and that's and, and and that's the kind of thing. See, that's you can tell you work with businesses because that's the kind of thing that a lot of smaller businesses and even larger ones overlook. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, it's licensing and it may be IP that you use as well. Yeah. Uh, and you can license it on a limited basis. Uh, but it may be IP that you've created that you don't really use, but you own it and someone else might be able to use it. And so it gives you the, it presents the opportunity to monetize an asset that otherwise just might be sitting there and that you're paying yep. to protect, you know, like renewals uh, or whatever. So, uh, it's it's really important to be able to uh, identify what your IP is and make sure if it has value, someone's paying for it. Make sure you're paying for it if you're using someone else's, of course. The the rabbit hole goes deep. I, I hear stories of registered trademark versus I've just written this down and put the letter T next to it in a circle. What's the difference? And when do you need to get a registered trademark as opposed to just saying, hey, look, this is trademarked. 
Right. So, I mean, the idea is, you know, I, for people who aren't necessarily familiar, trademark is anything and be a color, smell, sound, yep. um, image that lets people identify the source of goods, right? Yep. Yep. Or goods or services. So uh, they can be, you have rights to that. And we're speaking primarily in the US. You have rights to that, whether you register it or not, right? If you, if you just say, oh, I'm asserting that this is what I use, that's fine. Um, the problem is if you bump into somebody who's registered it, uh, what could end up happening is they have, in the United States, they'd have nationwide rights and maybe you get a carve out or they've been using it longer. So if you have something that's really essential to your business, which is typically branding, you do want yep. to, and the T just kind of means you're asserting it and the R means it's registered. Uh, and then, of course, there are tons of treaties like Madrid Protocol and all that actually govern how trademarks are treated in other countries. And typically, um, if you have one signatory, their trademark, uh, your trademark in one country can be used as a basis for registering your trademark in another country. Mm -hmm. uh, registration has a number of advances. So, for example, in the U.S., uh, marks that are infringing you know, goods or you know, yep. products that contain infringing marks can be, you know, seized by customs and destroyed. Um, different uh, penalties based on whether or not the mark that's being infringed is registered or not. It's pretty it's, serious uh, stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it can. I mean, think about it. You're, you're, here's the perfect example, right? There's, it's a case I was actually taught in law school where uh, a hotel chain had McCheckout. And the idea was, you know, if I say McCheckout, what immediately springs to mind for you? McDonald's. Right, right. But fast, quick, efficient, right? Yep. Just, there is no natural association between the preface Mick and fast, quick, and efficient, right? That is, and that's something we have in our head by virtue of McDonald's having spent billions of dollars on marketing <laughs> and advertising to create oh, yeah. an association in our head. Yep. You start using that, you're essentially, you know, you're sort of free riding on all the marketing they've done. And you might be surprised to learn that large corporations, small corporations, too, don't particularly like other people <laughs> free riding on, on, on their uh, on their expenses. So no, absolutely not. Look, I'm, I'm absolutely loving this call. And you and I both know that we can only ever scratch the surface of the things that you do. And I really do appreciate it, as does the My Future Business audience. Now, I know that they would have taken away a lot of this. <laughs> now, but before we move into the next section, I'd love to talk to you about your important work with the D Detroit community, Red Wings. What's that about? So uh, Detroit is an interesting place in some regards, like right now. Um, so... A lot of the development that's happening downtown and in sort of like the midtown, and there's a lot of it, is happening because of a few very rich individuals or families. And one of them is the Illich family, uh, which owns uh, the Detroit Tigers and the Detroit Red Wings. And they have a stadium downtown, and they, they were building another one that's been, since been built. It's called uh, Little Caesars Arena. Oh, they also own Little Caesars Pizza. 
Yep. Uh, and <laughs> so they were building this huge uh, arena and uh, yeah, so if you're going to build a huge arena in the middle of a city, you really kind of ought to talk to the people that live yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the Detroit City Council put together uh, a neighborhood advisory committee of people who lived or worked in the area who were able to negotiate uh, with the developers to make sure that what happened, that what they ended up building was didn't, you know, sort of encourage. Yeah, it didn't inconvenience people. It didn't yep. uh, didn't destroy other small businesses in the area. Uh, that a lot of the concerns that the community had were taken into uh, uh, consideration. And so I was one of the people that was, you know, appointed to serve on this board, uh, which meant I got to say loudly. You're lying. You're not going to do the things that you say you're going to do. Uh, <laughs> so then, no yeah, but no one listened to me. And, uh, <laughs> and so it was. <laughs> right. Little Caesars <laughs> Arena was built. Uh, it bears no resemblance to what they promised the community. All the other oh. things that happened <laughs> didn't happen. Um, so, but it was good because I'm a Detroiter. It, it feels good to be able to, you know, help and subsequently they went back to city council for additional money to build something else and uh people were like "Mm, you know at this point we're a little suspect (laughs) a little skeptical (laughs) yeah a little just a tiny bit just a tiny bit yeah it's funny because the my future business mission is all about helpful people helping people and i can see for sure and certain by reading your bio and going through your website that that's your entire mission you're passionate about helping others now tell me um i noticed you offer a mbe certification what's that about and who does it apply to so if you're operating uh, a business that serves as a supplier or is going after contracts from in detroit is primarily the auto industry right you're looking to be someone that uh, supplies anything from parts to services to even just simply space for parking cars, that kind of thing. Um, One of the things that comes in handy is having an MBE certification. So uh, one of the things that study after study has shown is that businesses are better off when they diversify among their suppliers. And part of it is, people just sort of get in the habit of using the same suppliers over and over again. And a lot of times it becomes a cool boy network. But when you step out of that, you suddenly find out, Oh, Hey, um, my man's been charging me 15% more than I could get if I just stepped outside that. So it's something that, you know, for example, the big three are very, uh, engaged with because it not only supports the community we're talking about in a city that's still predominantly black. Um, you don't have small businesses or, you know, that are owned by women or minorities being cut out. So yeah. they have, so they look for, you know, minority or women owned businesses. Well, how do you prove that? And how do you end up not having a business that's seeking, you know, to get those kind of contracts, but they are in fact, uh, the minority or woman owned aspect of it is just a front. So there are a couple of different organizations, um, 
that provide those kind of uh, certifications. And one of the things they do is they look at the business, right? And so I help prepare them and do all the things they need to do. So for example, you may have uh, your business that's a limited liability uh, company, LLC. You have a partnership agreement that provides for the actual, you know, sort of governance of the business. And it might be that you own 51% of the company or 52% of the company, but the but the operating agreement says that that's not how decisions are made by ownership mm. and that yep. there's some other uh, criteria. And it turns out that, that, you know, the woman of the minority isn't actually the one making the decisions, right? Uh, it may yep. turn out <laughs> that they're not actively involved in the company. So uh, that they're not the ones to whom most of the profits are going or who, you know, the, the business assets aren't in their name. So one of the things I do is I help businesses prepare for that assessment by reviewing their governing documents, by reviewing, you know, their leases, asset ownership, liability ownership to make sure that they are in fact what they claim to be, which is a business that is uh, sort of owned and run by a woman or a minority. Yeah, fantastic, Fever. Absolutely loving this call. There's going to be a lot of people on the call wondering where they stand right now in terms of the work that you do that we've spoken about tonight, today, this morning, whatever the time might be when you listen to this. Now tell me, uh, if that be the case, what is the process to move uh, one step closer to you, to work with you, to find you? Do you have an onboarding process and could you share it with us? Oh, sure. I mean, the easiest thing to do is you go to my website, which is ewilliamspllc.com, which is uh, my uh, firm's website. And yeah. just click contact me and you can uh, we can arrange for a quick call. I do a you know 15 minutes sort of free evaluation. It usually ends up being longer than that. But mm-hmm. uh, one of the things and I've been told I do this too frequently, is if there's something someone can do to help themselves, right, without having to hire a lawyer, I, you know, I'm always willing to to help people do that, right? I mean, if you're, for example, simply, you just simply want to figure out how to, you know, copyright one thing, a picture or something. Yep. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll literally sit on the phone with you and be like, hey, this is how you do that. This is how you do it. I, it's it's I that it's I don't think it's right to charge somebody for it's something. not always charged by the by the second is it yeah I, it's it's not worth it to it's it's it's, it's not worth it to me I'd rather see you do it yeah right it's it's simple it needs to be done it may really help you a lot yeah but um it's 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 easy so I, I don't want to charge people um, unless it's heavy duty work mm-hmm. you know there's value in this there's there's certainly lots to be learnt, and I can see that you know you're sending a lot of, uh, I guess, goodwill out there through, I guess, the way that you go about running your business. And if you're on the call listening right now, and you're thinking, I need to learn more about the things we've spoken about, copyright, trademark, trade secrets, the list goes on and on and on. Be sure to reach out to Eric. I'll be making sure that his domains uh, below this post, no matter where you see it, you're definitely going to find the link back to Eric. And that's at ewilliamsplc.com. 
Is that correct, Eric? Yes. Fantastic. And uh, with all that being said, Eric, I've really, really enjoyed this call. I could speak with you forever about this topic. Thank you so very much for joining me on the show today. Been an absolute pleasure. 